There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Horticulture Week editor Matthew Appleby and today I'm with horticulturalist Adrian Evans who has a unique place in British horticulture as he's based in Finland. So he's got a unique perspective on gardening in the UK. So um, welcome Adrian. Thank you. Pleasure to be here Matt. And uh, what's the weather like with you? Well I have to say we had a little bit more snow this morning so when I look out the window it's white everywhere and well maybe a couple of minus degrees today so not as bad as the kind of minus 20 minus 25 that we normally have in kind of january february so if it gets to plus plus degrees i always say maybe it's time to put the shorts on but uh, but that's the weather over here at the moment absolutely no gardening weather at all ah i see so i guess the big question is you 20 years ago you went to finland so um how and why I guess it's kind of the usual story when people ask that question that um, I was dragged over here by the year um, with my now ex-wife um, all those years ago. Um, it was kind of, let's say, at that time in the UK, I was up for anything. I was kind of young. I was just in my 30s. And um, it was kind of, you know, an adventure to go on, really. So that was it. We were on a plane, sold the house, and, uh, you know, I guess life is over here and that's how it's been ever since, really. Brilliant. So how, how, how did you um, get into horticulture in the first place? I hear you've got a story about some sausages. <laughs> I do. I guess that was that was really my very first encounter, maybe, in horticulture. Um, my family were big gardeners. Um, but kind of we went when I was quite young, maybe three years old or something, um, down to visit my auntie in London, and she had a little garden there in a London Muse um, apartment where she was where she was living. And on the Sunday when we were going home, my parents came to look for me, and I planted a packet of sausages in the soil to see if I could grow a sausage tree. So that was my first experience, I guess. 
All right, still trying, I imagine. Um, and what about um, your first professional roles in horticulture? How did you start off professionally? Um, I guess that was when I was about, was I 14 years old or something, that um, we had to do a kind of couple of weeks work experience um, from school. And I happened to write away to a few different countries. And one of the um, kind of applications that came back was from Sir Thomas Ingleby of Ripley Castle. And I kind of went to do a couple of weeks work experience in the gardens with them and absolutely loved it. And um, I ended up kind of staying um, for the rest of the summer. And then all of those years, I guess, up until the age of about 17, where I got my first job after leaving school to do um, a one year's work experience before going to Ascombe Bryan College. And uh, what did you do at Ascombe Bryan? Ask and Brian, I was there for quite a long time, I guess. I enjoyed studying and I did um, a national diploma in horticulture, which was a three-year course and kind of first year in the college, second year out in the industry, third year back at college again. Um, once I'd done that one, I did a higher national diploma in horticulture um, based more on kind of management and, and, and one thing or another. Um, and I think it was that year or was it the year before that um, at the college, um, Ascombe Bryan College, they were kind of affiliated with Leeds University. And at that time, you could kind of use your two um, higher national diploma years as undergraduate years. And um, you could kind of do a, a Bachelor of Science degree in one year. So I guess I was there for six years altogether and thoroughly enjoyed it, I have to say. Ah, cool. So have you got any views on the state of horticulture education now? I guess you're a bit removed from it, but you've got any perspective on that one? Um, I would say kind of, uh, I mean, I let's say I, I, I keep the finger on the pulse, as it were, with, um, with UK horticulture, of course. I mean, as being a horticultural gardening um, journalist, then, you know, I'm always looking back to the home country for what's going on and everything like that. But um, one thing that I've um followed and one thing that i think is absolutely brilliant is kind of like doing um what would it be kind of when you actually go to work on the on the job um instead of perhaps studying um you can just kind of go and and learn the skills from the people that you're working with like a well an apprenticeship scheme i guess and with horticulture being such a practical kind of subject um I have to say kind of the courses that we have over here in Finland, for example, um, although there are um, very good practical kind of assignments that they do and everything, um, it's money these days and it's kind of bums on seats and whatnot. And as a part of that, of course, then, then you know, colleges and establishments have to make money. Um, but it's kind of, I think it's really, really good that, that the practical aspect of horticulture, um, certainly in the UK, has, I would have said, quite a few more opportunities at the moment than over here in Finland. So, so Adrian, as your, as your career progressed, you reached the... Um some of the heights of, of British horticulture. Tell me about your um, your medal-winning days at Chelsea. 
Yeah, that was kind of, gosh, when I think back to that, that was quite a long time ago, 30-odd years, I guess. Um, we were given the opportunity when I did my first course there, the National Diploma, of taking a garden designed by one of our design um, lecturers, Paul Green, um, to take a kind of garden down to Chelsea and to go and build it. And um, we, very fortunately, we kind of won a, a, a silver medal um, for that garden. Um, the second year they wanted to do it again and I took a bit more of a kind of, I wanted to play a bit more of an active role in that really. Um, so I was responsible for kind of sourcing all of the plants for um, for the show. So it was a case of, of course, buying stuff in, um, a case of growing things um, in the greenhouses that we had there at college, um, and also kind of going begging and borrowing and stealing plants from all around North Yorkshire to make up the rest, I guess. And we took that down to Chelsea. We won a silver gilt medal for that one. And um, the third year then was given the opportunity of actually designing the garden myself and everything. So took that down. We had it built again by the students. And uh, we won another silver gilt medal for that one. So it was certainly, let's say, at a very young age in my early 20s and everything like that. Quite a feather in the cap, I must say. So who were you sourcing plants from in those days? Um, we used for bigger plants, we were using a nursery on, on the north of London, which was, was it Tender Care Nurseries? I think it was. All right, yeah, yeah, they're still around, yeah. They were growing quite, you know, large mature trees and kind of shrubs and, and, and perennials and everything like that. We got quite a lot of material from there. Um, and then it was just kind of we got in touch with various gardens um, in North Yorkshire and one of them I always remember, um, it, at that time it came under Leeds City Council, I do believe, um, but it, would, it, it had been a garden that had been built on kind of a, well, all I can describe it as is a slope, I guess, um, by a gentleman who, you know, he, he, he'd, by that time he'd retired, but he'd put an awful lot of work into that garden and kind of handed it over to Leeds City Council. Um, but I always remember, to this day, his words. He, he um, took me to one side when we were digging up, I think, a tree peony or something, and he said, well, young man, I'll tell you about my experience in gardening. And he said, I can definitely say that it takes one whole lifetime to learn about gardening, and then it takes a whole other lifetime to actually put into practice what you've learned. And uh, I've always thought of those words because I don't think I've ever stopped learning in horticulture since I took it up as a profession. Oh, sound advice, sound advice. So we heard a little bit before about how um, you went over to Finland. We know now it's difficult for people from Europe to get into UK, but how difficult was it for you to get into Finland? Um, I have to say it was fairly easy. I mean, at that time, of course, previous, a little bit previous to that, we joined the EU. Um, so there was free travel all around Europe. So for me, it was a case of kind of just going to the, well, local police station um, and filling in all the forms and kind of waiting, was it a month or two until that all came back, which gave me a permanent residence permit here. 
um, in Finland. And it's, I guess it lasted right the way through until Brexit went through. And it was just a case then of, well, I haven't experienced any problems with it whatsoever. Um, it was just a case of going back to the police station, filling in a few more forms and getting a new residence permit. So that's how it just went, really. It was very easy to get into the country. Well, as someone who's living on the continent, what's your views on Brexit and its effect on British horticulture? Um, I, I can't say whether um, I was kind of pro or... Well, what not for it. I mean, of course, it's caused a lot of problems um, and things that I've been following, for example, like these little loopholes, which are kind of ridiculous in a way um, that let's say I, I read some articles whereby a lot of trees that were being grown in Ireland that have always kind of been bought into the UK, they weren't allowed to send them because you weren't allowed now to kind of have um, foreign soil on plants going into the UK. Um, so in certain respects, I mean, there's plus points and there's negative points in everything. Um, but certainly um, in terms of Brexit, then, well, there's challenges like in everything, I think. And we just have to kind of work through those challenges and, um, you know, make the best of it, I guess. That's all you can do. What do you think the sort of long game is? Well, how do you think it's going to all end up? Do you, do you think we'll be, reach some sort of happy equilibrium with um, the EU or do you think there'll be sort of tension forever? I don't think it'll be forever. I mean, everything has to kind of have its place and everything like that. I mean, all countries, they certainly, certainly kind of functioned um, being independent before the EU and everything like that. And I think, I mean, of course, there's an awful lot of teething problems in the beginning. Um, but certainly once those teething problems have been overcome, um, then I think it's just a case of getting on and making what we have of it, really. Um, you know, Brexit has gone through, we're not part of the EU anymore, and we have to work our way through that. That's very philosophical. Now, tell me how your career in Finland progressed to become the face of gardening in the Nord Nordic countries. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, well, long story, of course. Um, when I first came here, um, I have to say Finland was... Um, in terms of integrating into a, a culture, it was a little bit difficult, kind of. There's only um, a small kind of five, six million people who live here in Finland, and um, they have had quite a history um, of being under occupation, um, firstly by Russia, and then they were under Swedish occupation, um, and they've only kind of been independent um, for the last, is it 60 years, I think, something like that. So a little bit kind of, um, how would I say, a little bit kind of difficult perhaps in those days when I came here for foreigners to integrate. Um, and I guess I was basically told when I came here that um, first thing to do, forget all about work and everything like that, then um, go and learn the language. And fortunately for me, um, I was good at languages, that, that, that they were my best subjects at school. So I guess I picked the subject up quite quickly. Um, but then, of course, coming to um, a foreign country and then kind of in terms of the climate that we have over here, which um, I can explain is kind of six months of summer or let's say five and a half months of summer and the rest of the time is winter when no gardening happens whatsoever. 
I mean, basically gardening is gardening, whatever you do in whatever country. Um, but of course, with the um, winter and the kind of temperatures that going down to minus 25, minus 30 degrees, then of course the plant palette I had um, and I would use as a garden designer there in the UK, um, that kind of I found, okay, I can't use that plant, I can't use that one, I can't use that one, because of course they don't survive the winter over here. So there were a few challenges, I have to say, certainly a few challenges and a lot, lot to learn. But um, at the end of the day, horticulture, whatever profession you have is all about learning. And um, I guess... Well, as I mentioned earlier before, I don't think I've ever stopped learning. There's always something that I, I, I kind of learn week by week and whatnot. So that's, I guess, how it is a little bit. Ah, yes. So turn, turning it round, what lessons from Finland could UK horticulturalists learn about plants? About plants? I mean, of course, everything that we have here, um, they would grow no problem over there in, in, in the UK. One part of my career has always been kind of looking into um, new plants and new varieties, new breeding programs and things like that. And um, of course, we're quite advanced in Europe in plant breeding. Um, and I think horticulture is all about pushing the boundaries, really, you know, in terms of plants and everything like that, of increasing what stocks we have. So Adrian, you're close to the board with Russia. I'm not sure how close, but what's your view on Russia's impact uh, on Europe? And and um, you know, what have you got any perspective on that? I have no, absolutely. I mean, yes, it's obviously very close on our borders, and and um, there has been uh, quite a lot of talk, obviously, in in the Finnish government about whether they should join um, NATO or not. Um, also Sweden. I mean, Sweden's only from where I live here on the West Coast. It's only a few kilometres over the water um, to Sweden. So both countries, of course, have been kind of following along um, what's, with, what, what's been happening in Ukraine, but obviously in a little bit of a kind of tough situation um, in the way that I guess Mr Putin over there has said that you know, if Finland or Sweden decides to swing their tails into the, the um, into NATO, then there could be consequences. So it's a kind of difficult situation. Um, reading the kind of, let's say, polls that have done um, or have been done over here by, for example, um, the newspapers and whatnot, then I think the majority of Finnish people are in favour of joining NATO. Um, just in case anything happened. Um, but again, I think it's like um, any other European country over here. The difficulties have been, um, obviously, in in kind of a lot of imports have come from Russia. Um, Finland's certainly a country that, although we're a very, let's say, we're a very, very forested country over here, um, they still buy timber, um, you know, different types of timber from Russia. Um, energy production, of course, we have have um, let's say energy companies over here in Finland who um, have also you know they've got companies there in Russia, and um, you know it's it's like a lot of 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 countries in the EU that they've pulled out of um, Russia now, 
And um, fortunately, kind of, let's say, from the energy perspective, then Finland's quite OK. We're not kind of as reliant on gas production. I think it's only three to five percent of gas that we take over here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, affected everything. And I have to say, for example, um, one of the um, magazines that I, I write for, um, they were kind of getting the magazine printed over in St. Petersburg. And, um, you know, they've had to pull out now a few weeks ago. Um, and, of course, that has changes on the um, the magazine itself. Costs have gone up because they have to print over here in Finland, which is um, very much more expensive than what it was over in, in, uh, in Russia. So, you know, I mean, I, food in kind of food, production and everything like that then of course prices are rising petrol prices um are rising with inflation of course that's part of covid as well um so yeah we're just as affected as anywhere else in the eu i guess no no indeed now a big horticultural question peat it's um nordic countries there's a lot of peat used. there's a lot of peat bogs what's your view on peat use in horticulture Peat use on horticulture. I wrote an article actually about that a few weeks ago. And um, Finland, let's say, is different to the UK in the respect that they have um, quite a lot of um, peat bogs um, over here. And um, that we have quite a lot of, of course, peat producers. The two big companies over here are Kekula and another one called Bioland. And um, Kekula, for example, they're a big exporter of peat, so they produce also professional peat, which goes all over the world. Um, and their argument, I guess, is that what percentage of peat we use over here is relatively small, and um, they're only allowed to um, extract peat from um, certain bogs that have been classified that you know they can extract peat from 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 these peat bogs and everything like that. Um, but of course, it's kind of public perception as well when people are seeing that, you know, peat's kind of, let's say, peat bogs um, in terms of biodiversity and in, in, in terms of kind of carbon sequestration and everything like that, then they're a very, very important part of our environment. Um, but yeah, I mean, the kind of the arguments that I've been hearing, of course, over in the UK, um, you know, let's say there's the, the, the for and against. Um, the against, of course, is being said that, no, we should not, you know, we should not touch any more of the, the peat bogs for the, the effects that, you know, they have of extracting peat. Um, but there's also the, the side that I've been following, of course, from the professional side, whereby um, the argument, as we all know, is that... Um, peat um as a professional product and everything like that then there is really no um no alternative um in terms of let's say quality or quantity that we could perhaps within six months or a year um completely you know go peat free um the other thing that I guess um, companies are of course looking um, at over here they are looking at the alternatives um, but an article I read from one of the companies last week, they were saying that, of course, let's talk about perhaps um, 
Koya or, 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 or different products like that, then of course Koya, um, it's not produced locally. It's produced on the other side of the world in India and that has to kind of get here and, and they're talking about the kind of carbon footprint that that leaves behind. Um, but the, the alternatives or one of the alternatives that they're strongly looking at um, over here at the moment is... Um, Oh, golly, Phragmites australis, the plant's name, is it grows on the shores of lakes um, quite a lot over here. And we do have a lot of it. And they're actually kind of looking at perhaps using that as an alternative material or using it to kind of mix in with composts or mix in with, with um, these alternatives and everything like that. Um, and the other one is, like, in terms of peat, um, they're looking at kind of using the actual moss, um, which is the kind of first layer which grows on top of a peat mire and everything like that. They're using that now, and they have got products in the hobby sector, which they've started to incorporate that into their products. So um, it's, again, the debate for and against. It's, it's as it is. Um, and I have to say, as a professional horticulturist, I'm still a little bit leaning on the side of um, we need to really invest and find the alternatives then before we can go peat-free. I guess that's where I stand on it personally. No, well, that was interesting, Adrian. And there was a couple of interesting alternatives which I don't really know about and I'll certainly look into. And it's been really interesting talking to you and getting your perspective from Finland. But now we're going to move to a desert island because that's what we always do in the Hort Week podcast and ask if you were stuck on a desert island, what plant would you take? What plant would I take? Oh, that is such a difficult <laughs> question to try and answer and everything like that. Um, I think what I would take, because I, I've always been used to them and we do have them over here, I think it would have to be um, the English oak. It would have to be Quercus rubor for all the kind of biodiversity that that tree has. And, um, of course, if it was on a desert island and if it was a bit warm, then I'm sure after a few years you get a little bit of shade from it. So that's the one. That's my choice for my desert island. Ah, taste of home. OK, well, thank you very much there to Adrian Evans, our British horticulturist in Finland. And I'm Matthew Appleby, and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe to or follow Horticulture Week podcasts via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Once again, thank you and goodbye till next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.